out to school The teacher is teaching the golden rule American history and practical man You study them hard and hoping to pass Working your fingers right down to the bone the tribe of love listening to today's broadcast of talk out of school bienvenidos mi gente bienvenidos mi familia welcome my family wbai listeners my name is daniel alicea my pronouns are he and him i'm the proud son of manny and alma and i'm welcoming you today to another episode of talk out of school and what a show we have lined up for you i'm coming to you live once more from wbai we are Free Speech Radio. This is listener-sponsored, locally controlled, non-commercial Pacifica Radio here in New York City. We're found on 99.5 FM on your radio dial. We are also being live-streamed on WBAI.org. At Talk Out of School, we focus on the issues affecting public schools and public education here in New York City on a statewide and nationwide level. And if you'd like to listen again later or catch us a little bit later, or even share today's broadcast with a friend or loved one, it is available for download as a podcast online on the WBAI archives, or you can find us on Apple or Spotify. Wepa, What a week. What a last 72 hours. That lawsuit telling the mayor of New York City that he's going to have to um, rethink and restore the cuts to our New York City schools. Well, parents, educators, families, and most of all, our students have won. And today we have our co-host, Lainey Hameson, who will give us the rundown from the rally that brought hundreds of parents and families and students and educators to the steps of the courthouse to the decision that was made by Judge Lau Frank. She will be with us first. And then we have another very special guest, Cherie Gibson, who was recently appointed to the Panel for Educational Policy, which is the New York City's Department of Board of Education. She will be representing the Borough of Queens. Queensborough President Donovan Richards announced this key appointment last week. She is a resident of Queens Village. Gibson has extensive experience as a parent leader in the city's public school system, having been a member of several official bodies that shape school policies. She will serve on the panel for educational policy, which governs the Department of Education. On the line is our co-host, Lainey Hampson. She is uh, also the executive director of Class Size Matters. Welcome, Lainey. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Selene, Thank you for taking over the, the hosting responsibilities the last few weeks when I've been very busy with this lawsuit. So we have good news to report. Yeah, there's so much going on, and I feel like it's been it's been a soap opera of, of sorts. I know the last time our, our listeners got to, to kind of get an update, they, they found out that the city had attempted to to um, get rid of the temporary restraining order on 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 them regarding the school budgets 
And then Monday rolled along and the mayor did what he typically does, um, tries to kind of uh, placate things. And so he he made an offer. Maybe you can take us through some of the major things that have happened this week, starting with his offer of, of, of $150 million. Um, tell us what that all was right. about. So this was an email late at night. I guess it was Monday night, I can't remember now, by Dan Weisberg, who is the deputy chancellor, who said, we've heard from the field and we are allowing you to use $100 million to principals that they'd already allocated out of the federal funds for recovery services. Now we're going to allow you to pay for teacher salaries with that money, um, which before they had been prohibited from doing. Um, they also said that we are going to start responding to appeals from principals right away um, who have uh, uh, said that they're underfunded um, depending on their enrollment, so that their enrollment was actually greater than the DOE had projected. Uh, but any actually, Weisberg used the, rule, the words that they are prevented from providing mandated services to children, whatever that means. I assume that has something to do with special education, but I don't know for sure. But that they would start uh, uh, responding to these appeals from principals in a positive way, and that eventually they would give them back $50 million um, to the principals who won their appeals. But they didn't say that all principals would win their appeals, just some. And they didn't really explain how many principals have asked for how much money. So we know that all schools saw significant budget cuts out of their galaxy budgets. We've estimated that um, as of the end of July, the cuts were nearly $1.4 billion. And then we did an analysis showing that last year after that point, there was only about $450 million that was given in budget allocations after that point. So we actually estimate that the budget cuts to schools are on the order of a billion dollars by the end of the school year if the cuts are not restored. Um, the, the controller uses a different number, which is only um, focused on fair student funding cuts, which he estimates around 460 seven million dollars for the schools that have cut been cut but fair student funding in a normal year is only about 60 percent of school budgets and we believe that last year it was a smaller percentage of school budgets because of all the federal money that was coming in in addition so um that's what the city did in in terms of trying to tamp down dissatisfaction by the principals who are feeling a lot of heat at having to access so many teachers. We also found out that 700 teachers had already been accessed. Um, the, Dan Weisberg said at the DOE hearings that they didn't expect any more teachers to be accessed than usual. Well, we heard that 700, at least 700 have been accessed so far and supposedly zero from previous years, the last two years anyway. So we know that a lot more teachers have been accessed. So then what happened was um, the uh, hearings were scheduled for yesterday and um, the oral hearings in front of Judge Lyle Frank. We both sides had 
submitted extra papers um, in advance of the hearings. And it was a really interesting morning. First of all, there was a very large rally in Foley Square with hundreds of parents and some elected officials and advocates speaking out against the budget cuts. That was at 9.30, and then the court hearing was was scheduled for 10 a.m. And we left the rally early to make sure that we had seats to listen to the the, the hearing. Um, the room was pretty much full from the beginning. It was certainly full by 10 o'clock. Um, the judge came in, um, made a joke immediately that, oh, really, look, I'm surprised that the, the, the hearing room is full. Um, it was mostly the city's lawyers and reporters, though there were a few parents and parent leaders that I recognized. And he immediately launched into questioning, um, mostly questioning of the city's lawyers, mostly about this emergency declaration that the chancellor had made at the end of May with boilerplate language, uh, exact same language that they had submitted and declared something like 10 out of the last 12 years to say it's an emergency. We have to send money to schools before the PEP votes. And this year, of course, when they sent money to schools, it was hugely diminished from the previous year. Um, it was never 100% clear to me what this had to do with the fact that the city council voted before the PEP, which was the main issue in our lawsuit. Um, but the city, because it never mentions in the emergency declaration that we have to vote before, that we have to allow the city council to vote before the PEP. That's the thing that's specifically against the state law. But um, the, 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 um, the city argued that because of this emergency declaration, the PEP did not have to vote before the city council. And as long as they voted afterwards or within 60 days of the emergency declaration, everything was legal. Well, the judge did not take kindly to that argument. He said, it's really ludicrous or to, to claim every single year that there's an emergency. Um, our lawyer stood up, um, um, Arthur Schwartz, who's the lawyer along with um, Laura Barbieri from Advocates for Justice that are handling the case pro bono and said, look, it, it wasn't 9-11. It wasn't the height of the pandemic. Um, there was no emergency and they didn't even specify in the emergency declaration what the emergency was. And they have never specified what the emergency was in their declaration. They didn't have an affidavit from the chancellor in any of the legal filings that they made explaining what the emergency was. And though the city attorney argued valiantly, it was clear the judge was not gonna take his, his word for it that there was an emergency. So he said the only other question that he really had was does he have the, the power to order the city council or the mayor to do a revote on the on the education budget. It was clear it was only the education budget that um, was improperly or illegally adopted. It's the only education budget which is mentioned in state law. So um, uh, the of course the city's lawyer said you don't have the power to do this because of separation of powers. Um, the other attorney stood up and said yes. In fact, it happens quite often that when the executive or the legislature 
has violated either the law or the state constitution, um, it, you, uh, the judge has the power to tell them to do it differently. And in fact, I've personally been involved in many different cases in which that has happened. So I found that a little bit strange um, that they would even take that argument seriously if the DOE breaks the law and they have in several different cases, again, that I've been personally involved with and other people have been involved with, the court tells them they have to do something differently. So um, that was pretty much the whole argument. It was pretty clear by the end of the session that the city had lost and the um, the attorneys for the city kept on saying, oh, well, I don't like this. The judge said, I know that you don't like any of this, but I'm going to rule that the emergency declaration is invalid and that the city council either should be required to revote or can be authorized to revote. Um, and that was pretty clear from the from what he said at the at the hearing. And sure enough, um, after the city he, they said, I want advice from both sides, attorneys from both sides, as to exactly how the preliminary injunction should be written and what should happen to the budget before this re- vote happens. Um, well, Lenny, I saw your tweet yeah. uh, in response to that. So in that in that time that the, the lawyers from both sides were supposed to respond, you got hold of um, what they had filed. It was basically, you know, the city council can respond to our November budget modification, but until then, um, nothing essentially should change. And it was just a very, uh, and then they said, even if you take this advice, that doesn't take away our power to appeal. It was a very unconvincing and kind of begrudging um, um statement, which did not really even seem to take into account that his decision um, that he was going to require a revote. And then ours was more complicated and longer. And but it, what it one thing it clearly said is that um, no uh, the, the previous budget overall DOE budget should stand from last year until there is a revote um, an agreement by the mayor and the council. Um, until then, no budget of school level budget should be cut. And if the mayor wants to add money for his dyslexia initiative, he should be able to. And the judge pretty much took took us up on that language. And in the, the final order, which he released this morning, said pretty much the same thing, that the Previous year's budget should hold until there is a revote and an agreement between the mayor and the and the uh, the city council on what the education budget should say. But until then, um, further budget cuts should not be made at the school level. The DOE can reallocate um, federal money that has not yet been allocated to the DOE budget, and uh, they can go ahead and fund the dyslexia uh, initiative, which is an important initiative to the mayor. Um, I saw a reporter, yeah, they got that dyslexia thing from the city's papers because the city had mentioned it among many other things in their papers for, you know, 
mixed in with many, many pages uh, weeks ago as being part of the reason that there should be no temporary restraining order because it would block the dyslexia initiative. But I pointed out that actually, no, this came straight out of what um, the attorneys for the plaintiffs had asked for last night. And that the city's attorneys had not asked for anything to be granted for the dyslexia initiative. So I'm hoping that the, the, and then the reporter argued back against me, but I thought it was silly to say that. Where does it stand now as far as, um, so yeah, so the city has filed a piece of paper which says they intend to appeal, though they haven't actually filed the appeal. They said they intend to appeal. I assume they will appeal. Um, but, you know, they've struck out with the appellate court before on this case, and they may strike out again. Um, I'm superstitious, so I'm knocking on wood and I'm not making predictions about the appeal. But I t- truly believe that the appellate court, whatever their decision, will decide fairly quickly because they know that it is um, an urgent issue for for principals to be able to finalize their school budgets. I'm, of course, hoping that the appellate court uh, does not overturn Judge Frank's decision, which I think is a very good one. I think um, the city council should immediately get going on figuring out what their negotiating posture should be with the mayor and start demanding that the mayor renegotiate the education budget with them. Um, The um, council member Shaker Krishnan and council member Gail Brewer put out a very good statement last night saying this gives us another opportunity to do right by schools and uh, redress the mistakes that we made previously with the with the with allowing these budget cuts to go forward. Previously, um, some members of the Progressive Caucus put out a, a message just moments before the taping of this segment, saying this should uh, thanking the plaintiffs, thanking the advocates, and saying going forward they would like more transparency with the budget, not just the education budget, but when presumably the speaker makes a deal with the mayor, whatever is in that deal should be um, um, accessible to council members at least a week in advance so they could look it over and decide whether they wanted to vote to approve or not. You know, this year was a very hurried process. They made a deal and then I think it was the next evening they voted to approve the budget um, all but six members. Um, and it was weeks before the legal deadline, which is June 30th. They voted June 13th instead of uh, two weeks ahead of the legal deadline. And that vote, that premature vote, is what made the, um, the education budget illegal and gave an opening to us and the other um, parents, teachers who were the plaintiffs on the lawsuit. To, go, to file the lawsuit and to sue. The city had made all sorts of other, what I thought were untenable claims in their lawsuit, none of which the judge took seriously. They said we waited too long. Um, in their initial filings, they said we waited more than two months, which was untrue. We waited just a little bit more than a month after the city council voted. And that was not, there was no statute of limitations attached. And that was 
actually done very, very quickly because we filed a memo of law and all sorts of legal papers and had the plaintiffs do affidavits. I did an affidavit. Um, Tom Shepard, who's a PP rep, did an affidavit. Um, the city also claimed that they had to go through all this public input process with CECs, which they never did, but which is also in the state law. Um, and we got affidavits in the second round from Naquan McLean, who you interviewed last week, the president of CEC 16, and also um, Camille Casaretti, who's the president of CEC District 15. So they they messed up a lot, and they mess up every year. And what was particularly obnoxious this year was that the you know when there was that PEP meeting on the on June 23rd, and there were nearly 70 teachers and parents speaking up against these cuts. The chancellor actually said on the record, "Well, it doesn't matter what people say, and it doesn't matter how you vote, because the city council's already adopted the budget, and everything you do." is irrelevant to the process. And clearly the judge said that was not true. And um, hopefully in the future, they will do it according to law, not just in the proper order. But also another thing that the state laws says, which they had didn't do, is present the budget to the PEP and units of appropriation. So Lenny, it seems like the, the ball is in the city council's court here. Um, more than maybe the, the mayor, what what are some scenarios you see playing out here that hopefully will lead to a, a resolution that is going to help us make sure that these cuts uh, are, are restored? Well, I'm hoping that if the city does appeal, that the appellate court rejects the city's appeal fairly quickly. In, in any case, I believe that the city council now has the authority to go ahead and figure out what their negotiation position is going to be with the mayor to demand the restoration of these cuts, start the negotiation process as soon as possible, and then have a revote. Um, I think the city council should be thrilled with the results of this lawsuit um, and should take take the ball in their hands and, and, and run with it and get a, get a touchdown. They've said almost from the moment that they adopted the budget that they regretted these education cuts and were demanding that the mayor restore them and the mayor has refused to restore them. And now they have the power essentially to force his hand. And that's what they actually should do. I mean, they have the power in the city charter to, um, vote a budget, and then if he vetoes it, they can override the veto, and they could do the same with the education budget, actually. But more likely that they will um, push forward, hopefully, with a strong negotiating position and restore as much of these cuts as possible, as quickly as possible, and that the mayor will finally see the writing on the wall and decide that it's to his political advantage to make a quick deal with the city council and get this issue behind him because he is really losing a lot of his popularity every single day while this controversy continues. There are people that are bird-dogging him throughout the city. Um, there are articles about this in the paper almost every day. Um, he is losing a lot of his political capital by fighting so hard on this issue when there's plenty of money at his disposal to restore these cuts. 
So I think he would be politically wise to do this. And I think the city council would be politically wise to use this as an opportunity to redeem the mistakes that they made in the past. So we've got to encourage parents and, and, and all those that care about this to call their city council members. Let's put some pressure Absolutely. on Call their city council members, um, ask them to push forward with negotiations immediately and to restore well, the, a lot of the advocates are saying the $467 million that the controller has said has, was cut from fair student funding. We believe it's a billion dollars that will have been cut from school budgets. So we are going to ask them to push for the higher number, a billion dollars, knowing that within negotiations, you usually come down in the end anyway. Well, thank you, Lainey, and thank you so much for really being a lead in this lawsuit. It's meaningful and it's a historic moment. Well, thank you for your support, Daniel, and for taking the reins of this uh, podcast and radio show while I've been immersed in the litigation. You're listening to Talk Out of School on WBAI 99.5 FM, New York. I'm on the line with Sheree Gibson. She is a longtime parent leader in Southeast Queens, and she is the newly appointed representative PEP or Panel for Educational Policy um, member. She was appointed by Queensboro President Donovan Richards. Welcome, Sheree, to Talk Out of School. Thank you. I appreciate you. Thank you for having me. So, Sheree, if you could give us just... Um, some background, your, your entree into New York City schools, either as a student, as a parent, a parent leader? Um, so as a student, I started for six months as a kindergartner. Um, my parents did not have a very good experience uh, with the public school that I was sent to for kindergarten. So they thought it would be better for me to go to private school. And so I went to private school in my community from first grade to eighth grade. But then after that, I refused. I wanted to go to public school. I didn't want to wear a uniform anymore. I wanted to have a whole different experience. So I ended up going to Hillcrest High School. What up, Christians? Um, uh, and had a wonderful experience, but also my father learned the difference between what the rigorness, if you say, or the act academics in a public school in comparison to a private school. And from there, he was like, okay, so I now see the differences between public school and private school and what, you know, how my child's experience could have been different if I was involved. So my, uh, my niece, when my first, his first grandchild, um, was born, was living with us. When she started school, she did go to public school and he got involved and he became the PTA dad. Um, and so for all her, um, elementary, middle school and high school, he was involved in every single one of her schools as a PTA dad. I watched this fascinated because I was like, he was never like that for us, you know, <laughs> and stuff. But he realized that the more involved he was, she got a better education as well as what he could do and help the other kids and the school. And so that was my legacy. That was what I saw. So when I had my daughter and was looking at her 
schools for her to go to for kindergarten, I knew I was going to get involved because I, I had this example of being involved, improved your kid's education journey. Um, I stepped into leadership because one, I don't like to ask people to do anything that I'm not willing to do myself, but also because I've had experience in nonprofit boards and marketing and membership development and things, everything that a PTA needs, especially one building in a new school, I was like, well, I could step it in to do this and help build a parent group that would be supportive in this new school. And that's how my PTA journey began. Um, as I continued as a parent leader, it was you're involved in the school level. And then it was like things that we could get support from in the district level. And then you find out about, you know, president's council and then you're involved in your president's council and you see that you know, there's a leadership need that you could step in and fill. So that's how it always is. I step up. I can't ask someone else to do something I'm not willing to do. So I've done that from District 29 President's Council to uh, co-chairing at uh, the Chancellor's Parent Advisory Council to now Title I PAC chair for Lewis, for my daughter's middle school, Lewis Armstrong Middle School, and serving uh, New York State Ed has a Title I Committee of Practitioners, shortened to Title I Cops, and serving as the DOE parent representative um, there as well. So enjoying those roles, enjoying bringing the parent voice to those spaces that they don't always consider. And, you know, then the PEP King um, offer came and I was very hesitant because the type of person that I am, I am um, vocal. I don't uh, shy away from asking the tough questions and holding accountability. So I wasn't sure that um, the PEP was a space for me, but with uh, Queensboro President Donovan Richards and how he chooses to lead um, and serve, uh, I was able to make a, I was able to be a good fit, as they say. So a a little bit about how you were approached um, and what has, if there is an onboarding process, what were some of the conversations leading to this appointment? I have to give credit to a coalition of Queens parents who have different leadership roles within their community and within different leadership structures within DOE. But, you know, just Queen's parents who really, we knew that um, the previous PEP appointee was going to be stepping down and they wanted to make sure that Borough President Richards, Donovan Richards, um, considered somebody from Southeast Queens, but also somebody that was going to be really reflective and representative Mm -hmm. of all of Queens, right? And so me, I joined a meeting that they all came together with only to give perspective as a Title I parent leader, an active Queens parent leader, you know, kind of thing. So when we're on the call and we're talking, you know, we're talking with the current pet members who are giving us experience, like what their experience are, what the work is, what they do and stuff. And so we're coming up with parents names that we could put on this list and, and stuff. And so they are on there. They were like, well, Sheree, you have to be on the list. And I'm like, no, you know, <laughs> and I'm like, no, I'm here to give you names and help support. And I want to support and stuff, but not, you know, not me. And it was like, well, and I'm like, I'm not very good. 
being beholden to somebody else, right? I said, I feel that if I have an opinion, if I hear what my parents are saying around the community, that I'm going to lift up them. I'm not going to go with what you want for politics, whatever, whatever. But, you know, I said, but of anybody that doesn't do that to you is Donovan Richards. I had a a relationship with him previously in um, president council in district 29 when he was city council here. So he's always been someone that has um, definitely uh, appreciated parents and their involvement in the community and their schools, as well as our voice and always talking to us if we differ, you know, with explaining the ways that they differ and stuff. So I was like, if there's anybody that you would serve on, that would be him because uh-huh. he wouldn't make you say, go against anything you didn't believe in kind of thing. So at the time I said, okay, you could put me on the list, but I don't want, I don't want it just so you have a good list to present him. I don't want to be the pet person, you know, so, time commitment and all this. And then I really didn't want to give up the current parent leadership roles that I had. So that's how, so they submitted this list to, we submitted this list to Donovan and his team and they reviewed it, appreciated, thanked that we did this due diligence in this work and they started vetting people and he was like, you know, I saw her name on the list. I knew that's who I wanted. So it became about convincing Cherie to do the role. (laughs) I went through a long vetting process with uh, DOE's uh, um, ethics committee and the conflict of interest board because I have um, my business does has done business with DOE as well as I do a lot of political and community work. So making sure vetting that I was okay there. And then because my, my parent roles have been specifically parent roles as title one pack chair, as well as serving on the um, New York state ed's title one committee of practitioners, they do not conflict with DOE or the panel um, overseeing DOE. And so I could continue in those roles. So it kind of removed everything beyond just the amount of time that would have to give. And even though they tell you about the time commitment and the meetings and stuff, it's still, um, as someone who's spent this first week every day meeting to go over stuff to prepare for the meeting, it's a lot, but I also am not afraid of the work. And so it really came down to, is this another place that you could see lifting up parent voices and having an impact? And most said yes. So I said yes. The onboarding, I would have to say I'm going to, I'm going to hold grace for, for DOE staff now because I think it's really transitioning because the PEP meeting is next week. I was appointed last week and, you know, getting the briefings and everything in place this week. Um, I think it could be for someone who's not as familiar with the system could be overwhelming. Um, this week, there's still a lot that I don't know from the officials, but I know from my fellow PEP members or being, having gone to PEPs a lot and stuff. So I do think there could be, you know, who I am. I'm a process, you know, person like we could, what's the plan? We could put this in place. And so this, every time someone new comes on, they get this experience. So I would say that, um, it's a little lack of, there's a lot that I'm still not knowing and hoping to get over, um, the next week or two, uh, that that, but um, 
I do feel welcomed by my fellow um, appointees who have welcomed me. And, you know, we'll see what happens next week at the pep, at the actual pep meeting to see how I'm welcome. But literally this week has been um, me. I'm a part of briefings preparing for next week's meeting. So it's not really been a space for me to catch up. So I'm catching up on my own. Um, and they've set up a couple of briefings offline from what everyone else has already received. So it's just doing a lot of catch up. So I am prepared uh, to serve on next week, Thursday. It sounds, uh, sounds a lot like the DOE when I started teaching baptism by fire. Absolutely, yes. I would have to agree with you there, Daniel. Um, and so can you tell us a little bit about how you envision your role as uh, a representative of Queens on the PEP? Um, what are some of your goals as well? I kind of want to see and do this role in Queens definitely specifically differently than um, I've seen or maybe not, you know, before mapped out. But I think the biggest part for me is to be able to be a good representative from Queens is I need to know what's going on in Queens. You know, I need to know what's going on in my Queens schools. What are the issues that the parents are finding? What are the issues that principals and teachers are finding, you know, within our community? Um, is it the same throughout the whole city or are we dealing with something a little differently? And I won't come because I want to be able to speak to that. And I want to make sure that I'm bringing um, issues that are important to Queens parents, especially, but any New York City parent um, to the forefront. That's what this the panel is. It's supposed to be the public space that the public gets to come and question, not only question, but hear what what is going on in education in New York City and then question it or um, have asked questions of it to have answered so they can make better informed decisions. So I think a part of uh, a large part of what I would like to do um, is uh, meeting with. Queens education, you know, whether it's pa definitely parents, always parents, but the students, teachers, principals, superintendents, you know, what is it that you need support on? What is it that the borough president is behind that and wanting to hear that and communicating that as well as uplifting what we're doing great in our, um, in our borough? Uh, the borough president has already uh, in our talk and we were, was giving me schools that I should definitely reach out to and go see what they're doing. Doing, you know, because he's excited by a program or he thinks something, you know, um, that they're doing would, you know, is a great asset or something that should be highlighted or something we could replicate and stuff. So I appreciate that. He really sees the pet person as a partner um, that can also support what he's along with his education staff, what else he wants to do in the borough. So I definitely want to see that more information um, is given out to parents and the community, um, as well as being able to get um, information, ideas, um, issues from them as well. I'm sure you've been following this school budget um, cuts by the city. Um, your thoughts on what's going on as far as our schools not getting the funding um, that they need? Um, I, I, I am against the cuts. I think it was unnecessary at this time. I understand from 
what the mayor and the chancellor have said in terms of we have had enrollment losses and and we do have to prepare for, you know, not having federal funds and stuff. I'm not in any way disillusioned (laughs) about that you know, we're going to head to something um, in two years, but it's not now and it's not necessary. Um, I'm very much um, paid attention to what the federal monies and what it could be spent and what it was supposed to be used for. Um, I think also sitting on the New York State Ed, um, that committee, as well as hearing presentations on their you know, funding and funding around the state. It's like what we could be doing. And we're not doing that. I think these cuts were deep and hurtful. I think if you wanted to, as as the mayor has said, if he wanted to wean schools off of the federal money and stuff, I always ask the question, then why did you cut the fair, why did you make a cut to the fair student funding? You could have done something different, but you cut the federal money as well as you cut fair student funding. And that didn't make sense to me in terms of just weaning uh, the schools off. I said in my, I don't remember, I think it was the city council hearing, um, my testimony then at the beginning of last year, all I heard across the state, but definitely from um, Queens principals and New York City principals where they were so resourced. They, this is the most resources that they've had that they were so appreciative of coming into the year with resources to help the kids that the, with the, the things that they knew that they needed. I know for a fact that my own, my daughter's own school that my principal and the administration was very much about supporting and getting the kids back up to their levels that they were behind and they were going to bring them back to the, their levels. And I think because they had not think, I know that because they had those monies and those resources, they were able to support and get a lot of our kids back on track um, ahead of schedule, you know, kind of thing. And that's because they had the money to do what they needed to make the decisions and do what they needed to do. I don't know two years from now, none of us know what it was going to be like, but I don't think you needed to cut them off this year or next year when that is exactly what the federal funds was given to you for. If you wanted to talk about enrollment and enrollment losses, there are things that we could be doing. There are tactics that the strategy we could have put in place and tactics we could have used to address that. That was never uh started never thought of not uh, not thought that's wrong they did think of it but it was the easier thing was just to cut and i that part i don't understand and i i don't support and i think the you know the mayor doubling down now the, with the lawsuit and what the it has said what the city council has said i just don't understand why we can't stop we look at this make different decisions and move forward um i just think that it is not a fair thing to say, especially when the administrators that I hear from have said that the enrollment estimates are drastically largely more than what losses than what they actually have. So I already think right there you're starting from um, the wrong point in the wrong place. So let's just let's, you know, at least even for this year, let's keep the funding 
where the, the federal funding and keep fair student funding where it is. You're already doing something to look at the formula, but then let's look at how we look at enrollment and what dis- different decisions could we make and go from there. Um, so that's, that's my commentary, my issue with the budget and, and these cuts. So you said you served on the fair student funding uh, task force. Mm-hmm. Can you tell us a little bit about your thoughts about the, the present formula? What's wrong with it? Um, how can it be improved? Um, I think the, the, well, I would say one of the, the things with the formula is, is whether what the formula is based on is an accurate assessment for us. Uh, let's have the discussion. Let's see models. It's now based on, you know, average teacher salaries as well as an, um, enrollment numbers. Is that what it should be or what it's not to be? I think there are weights that, um, are in there that don't need to be in there. Um, I think there are weights that need to be there for the issues and the types of students that we are dealing with now. Um, I think to say that, oh, we don't need to look at it, we don't need to adjust it, is um, is poor decision it's poor business. It's poor decision making. Like you always, something especially that affects funding so drastically should be looked at because as years pass, as times and trends and different things are happening in your city, your, your funding has to address that. And I don't think this, it's not just, uh, this chancellor, the previous one, um, as well as the previous administration, none of them want to sit down and actually do the due diligence of looking at this formula, breaking it down, as well as once you have this formula, it should be easily explainable to everyone, you know, from uh, principals to administrators. And we should be easily able to explain how we're funding our schools. And I don't think this formula does. I think in past years, it has been easy to say the formula it doesn't work or it's not it's it's not fully showing what it can because it's never been fully funded by the state. Well, it's now fully funded by the state. So there's no longer an excuse. So maybe it just doesn't work. So you have principals who, as a task force, who shared with us, you know, different ideas of how funding could work or what they didn't, um, what they didn't like about the formula, what they might not like it, but it helps them make this decision, you know? So it's not a completely a neg. What I'm saying is that what the formula is based on needs to be looked at. It needs to be addressed and it needs to be stopped being kicked down the road. Let's do the work now. You formed that task force. That task force came up with recommendations and you know, that report was put aside and not looked at. We have a new administration, a new chancellor who now, because of pressure, has said he wants to look at it and wants to do it. But then it's like, are you going to do it with fidelity? Are you really going to do it to make that change? Or are you just doing it to entertain us? So, you know, just to entertain and uh, placate the those who complain. So we'll see. But I do think that the formula, I think there are times that I sit there and say that we should blow up the formula and do something else. But then I also know we do have to find a way to fund our schools equitably. And so if this isn't an option to do it, let's do it. But figure out what's the best way to do it. So to wrap up here, I'm I'm really interested in how you view mayoral control of, of our New York City schools. Your thoughts on it? Um, I don't think mayoral control 
works. Um, I think we've had a few incidents, instances of because one person, the mayor was in charge that certain things got done. But I don't think it is a, uh, it is the, the best school governance model, um, especially for a city like New York City. Um, I think it is, it has turned into um, it has turned into us believing only in one voice and only one way of doing something and then de- being dismissive of parent and educators voice and opinions and suggestions and ideas. And so I don't think mayoral control works. I would like us to see us do something differently. I'm actually one of those people that is not automatically ready to jump into school boards again, um, just because I uh, have seen what I remember the times of our school boards not always doing the best work. I've also spent the time because of that is like you can't end for something and not come up with an idea or solution to replace it. I've been looking at how other cities have been dealing with their school governance and how the school board works. If it does, what kind, how, how hybrid do you do both? What? So that's why I support ending mayoral control, but I also support before we do that is um, having an independent commission that looks at what could be the best school governance model for New York City and having the right voices at that table who will really look at it from all aspects in all areas, not just a leadership and control or monies, but listening to students, listening to parents, listening to teachers, to principals, you know, listening to city government, state government and federal about what is the best way to govern schools by giving all stakeholders a voice and a say within it. And then coming up with that model for New York City. So I um, I don't want to, you know, I don't want to see, I don't want to see this anymore. These fights that we are having is because one person wants to just do their vision. And anybody in business will tell you is like, you can have a vision for something, but you have to have buy-in from the people who have to implement it. And you get their buy-in by them being contributed. They're part of the plan and they're able to contribute to it. And right now, none of us are able to contribute or have a say unless we fight for it, you know, and, you know, that's not, we, there's so many other things that we could be doing with our energy and with our ideas. So I think um, looking for a different governance model is what we should be focused on. Well, I'll tell you what, I, I've been following some of your comments, um, especially during the pandemic and some of the meetings, Sheree, and I am really excited that you are now a member of the PEP. Thank you for joining us on Talk Out of School, and uh, we'll, we'll be rooting for, uh, for you from, from the bleachers. Thank you so much. I appreciate that. And I guess I want the support. So please <laughs> support, support me and support us by letting, by letting us hear from you. So thank you for giving me the opportunity to share. And before we close, I want to give a special shout out to those that have been out on the street, uh, reaching out to parents, to our politicians, um, have been very, very vocal at our uh, at the rallies, at the the bird dogging events. Uh, special shout out to the folks at uh, Make the Road, AQE, New Yorkers for Racially Just Public Schools, 
um, the People's Plan, the folks over at Moore Caucus UFT, and others who have joined together in coalition to really work um, on behalf of our New York City school children and families and parents. Thank you. Well, that's all we have time for today. Thank you so much, Familia, for joining us today on Talk Out of School. Thank you, Lainey, our co-host and our guest, Cherie Gibson. This is Daniel Alisea, your co-host at Talk Out of School on WBAI 99.5 FM in New York City. Our show, Talk Out of School, is available as a podcast if you missed any part of today's broadcast. You can find us on Apple or Spotify, and please leave us a glowing review. And please consider becoming a WBAI buddy. As a WBAI buddy, you become a special supporter of WBAI and of this show, Talk Out of School. You can do so by calling 212-209-2950. That number to make a donation again is 212-209-2950. And be sure to mention our show, Talk Out of School, when you make your donation. You can also make a donation at WBAI.org. Just find the button that says Become a WBAI Buddy, and you can make your donation online. I'll be back soon, mi gente, for another episode of Talk Out of School. Remember, Tribe of Love, always remember that love always wins. It only grows